Good morning, church. It's great to see you guys once again. Um, first combined service in about a year. So this is, uh, I was talking to Aaron this morning, and he said, this feels like homecoming. So um, hopefully you guys are just as excited as I am to be here this morning. Um, and for those of you guys who are online, I also want to welcome, welcome you guys. And I also wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much as a church for your gracious generosity. Um, if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, you heard about our, um, the people in St. Vincent, which is my home country, who've been affected by uh, a volcano that continues to erupt. And uh, I recently got correspondence from Pastor Blake. He works with Ambassadors for Christ in St. Vincent. And he sent me a, a, a video um, about the work that they're doing to provide care packages for hundreds of people in shelters all throughout the island. So I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of recovery to be done. But anything that you can give would be much appreciated for that work that continues in St. Vincent. So thank you. We will be continuing in our study of uh, the book of, of Mark today in Mark chapter 9. And I've titled this sermon, An Ongoing Hunger for His Presence. An Ongoing Hunger for His Presence. Um, and the reason why I titled this sermon that way is because for many of us who have known Christ, especially who have claimed to be followers of Christ and who have done so for, for years, there's um, a kind of security that we have, knowing that our salvation is taken care of, knowing that the future is taken care of, there's a part of our heart that can begin to develop this sense of security where we're not really quite in touch with our hunger for God on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what I want us to do is to really be paying attention to what is the temperature of our hearts? What is it that, that, that drives us each and every day? What is it that we hunger for? And how do we relate to this God who has redeemed us? Is there this sense of hunger for him as we go day in and day out. And so one of the things I want us to pay attention to and to, to remember is that one of the distinctive marks of a follower of Christ is one who has an ongoing hunger for him. We should be a people that have an ongoing hunger for the presence of God. And so as we go into this passage today, I want us to keep that in the forefront of our minds. And so we'll be in Mark chapter 9. And we'll pick up at verse 2. If you remember the tail end of last week's sermon, Jesus had promised his disciples that you, some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God. And so we pick up the story here in verse 2, and it says, And six days after he made that promise, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, three closest disciples, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, in previous sermons, we talked about this idea of solitude. And even as we speak about the, the mountain, there were several different things historically in the Bible that point to great things that have happened in mountains, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. And so he takes his disciples to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. The word transfigured means metamorphosis. That's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And it simply means to change. And what's going on in this story is that Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples. He's revealing the glory of God to his closest 
3. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see the sense of radiance coming from the person of Jesus. He's giving them a foretaste of glory. He's peeling back the layers so that they could see God. And verse 4 continues, and it says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, if you recall, Elijah and Moses are two figures in the Old Testament who had powerful experiences where they actually got to see the glory of God. If you can remember back in, uh, in the Old Testament, Elijah, when God had called him up to the mountain, that it said that there was a strong wind, so strong that it tore some of the, 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 the rocks out of the mountain. And then there was an earthquake, and then there was a fire, but God was not in either three of those. And that God appeared to him in a whisper, and in the presence of God, he wrapped himself. He, uh, he cloaked his, his face because he was in the presence of God. And he was also caught up in the whirlwind. He had a powerful experience in the presence of God. And Moses, we know pretty well, he went to the mountain, um, Mount Sinai, and that's where he received the commandments, and that's where he talked with God. And as a result of being in the presence of God, his face was shining because he was in the very presence of God. And so it's no incident that you see these two characters who would experience the power of the presence of God who appear in this picture. And it continues. Verse 5. Peter opens his mouth. Says to Jesus, Teacher, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. What is it that... Peter might have been thinking. You know, sometimes we say stuff and we don't really have much of a context for what we're saying. But I think, I think there was something that Peter was trying to, to get to or to relate to, and it's actually in Exodus chapter 33. And it says in Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 7, it says that Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent. And when Moses went into the tent, the people would rise and they would, stand at the door of their, they would stand at the door of their own tents. And then the cloud would descend at the entrance of the tent where Moses was. And that's where the Lord would actually speak to Moses. And when the people saw that, they would rise up and they would worship. And so maybe, it doesn't say this directly, but maybe um, with the appearance of Elijah and with the uh, appearance of Moses, maybe this is what Peter is thinking, that God is going to come down and he's going to meet with this people, and it's going to be a, a meeting of the heavyweights of the faith. It's going to be a meeting of the heavyweights, and we're just going to stand and we're just going to worship, and we're just going to watch this beautiful thing unfold, and we're going to worship. And God says, you're missing it. You're missing it. Verse 7, it says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and the voice 
came out of the cloud and it said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so there's a very important lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. And even though it takes the form of something that you would normally happen in the Old Testament, the cloud coming down and the voice of God being heard, the lesson is this. Number one, that when you are in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of the fullness of God. That Jesus doesn't need a tent. Why are you suggesting for there to be a tent for Jesus? Jesus does not need a tent. He is the presence of God. The thing that all of the prophets and righteous men were desiring to see is happening right now, right before your eyes. Scripture says that there were, that there were hundreds of prophets who longed to see this day where Jesus would come, where God would come and be amongst his people, and his disciples are seeing it right here and right now. And the lesson that he was trying to get them to see is that Jesus is the presence of God. This is God. He needs no tent. In verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Point number two is this. When we truly gaze upon Jesus our hearts become captivated in his presence. When you truly see Jesus for who he is, all of our other heroes of the faith, they pale in comparison. They may have some great quotes about Jesus, but when you actually taste of his presence, when you actually taste of the fullness of who he is, your heart becomes captivated in his presence. And so, no longer was Elijah and Moses present because they gazed upon Jesus. They were in the presence of God himself. And as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And, and there are a couple times in, in the scriptures where, you know, Jesus tells people to, to not say anything. Like he would heal somebody and say, well, don't, don't tell anybody that you've been healed. And I think a part of the reason why Jesus was telling the disciples to not say anything is because their communication is always two ways. There's the intended message that the person who's speaking is trying to relay to the listener. And then there's what the person who's receiving the message, what they hear, and what they also relay to other people. And given the fact that they didn't even quite understand what was going on, I think a part of it was it's better to be quiet than to inaccurately communicate a message that you haven't quite understood. And so they were unclear on a lot of things, and it really wasn't until the resurrection, like he said, 
where, where they would begin to get this sense of, of clarity, of, of, um, of what this was all about. And so in verse 12, it says, And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And so point number three is this, that in the presence of Jesus, he brings clarity, but in his time. That there is a clarity that Jesus does give in his presence, but sometimes it does not come when we want it. And so Jesus gives us his clarity regarding the prophecy of Elijah, and that's the thing that I want us to keep in mind today, that there are times when there are things that might unfold in our lives that may not necessarily make sense in the time, but as you continue to seek God's presence, that he will reveal clarity in his time. And so continuing in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, came down from the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. No surprise, right? And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked, uh, and he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered them, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So at this point, if you're one of the disciples, you're probably feeling a little bit embarrassed. I would probably feel that way too as well, because this man was obviously intending to bring his son to Jesus. Jesus wasn't available. He was up on the mountain with the other disciples. And they weren't able to cast this demon out. And so when Jesus is present, there was probably a part of the disciples' hearts that was like, man, yes, he's here. <laughs> We've been waiting on you. Where you been at, Jesus? And he says, he answered them and he says, oh, faithless generation. And he's talking to his disciples. And he says, oh, faithless generation. It's kind of like saying, you know, like how we used to say that, you know, we're living in a microwave generation. Kids always want, you know, stuff right now. They can't wait. It's speaking of what is typical of the culture. And he's saying to his disciples that what you are displaying is something that is typical of the world. Faithless generation. How long? How long? How long am I to be with you? If you're a parent of a teenager, you've said that several times. How long? Right? How long do I need to physically be here with you in order for you to do what you're supposed to do? How long? How long am I to bear with you? This is almost like a statement of expectation that there is something that should be produced that isn't being produced. 
that there is fruit that is inconsistent with the exposure. And what I mean by that is, uh, last week uh, was my oldest daughter's birthday. She just turned nine. Uh, my wife loves to, to bake. And uh, I love red velvet, cake, uh, red velvet cake. It's one of my favorites. Um, if I look like I gained a couple pounds this week, that's probably why. But, um, but if you were to mix the ingredients for a cake, you preheat the oven, you put that batter into the oven, half an hour, cake is done. Maybe an hour, depending on how big the cake is. It's done, right? So imagine if seven hours later, that cake has still not baked. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. It's not the oven, right? The oven is doing what it's supposed to do. But if it's been that long, and there's not fruit that is consistent with the exposure to the elements in the oven, then something is wrong with your batter. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, there is something wrong with this batter. Because you can't get exposed any more to the presence of God than Jesus himself. And if the fruit that is being displayed is one where you can't do what you should be able to, there's something deeply wrong here. Something is off. How long? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? There should be fruit that is consistent with your exposure to me that is not being displayed. And he says, it's a faith problem. We have a faith crisis. And so verse 20, it says, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Watch Jesus. Verse 21, he says to the father, how long? How long? Remember, he just asked his disciples, how long must I be with you and how long must I bear with you? Then he turns around and he says, how long? to the father as well. How long has this been happening to him? In other words, how long, like the, the, the length of exposure to this situation, what has it been producing in you? What has this been creating in you? Tell me more about this. And he says, verse 21, from childhood. So it's been happening for a long time. In my field of work, there are three ways that you determine how severe a person's behavior is. Frequency, intensity, and duration. Frequency meaning how frequent is a particular behavior happening? Does it happen 10 times a day? Is it happening 20 times a day? Two times an hour? Intensity, how, how severe is the behavior? Is it headbanging? Is it uh, slitting of the wrist? What, what, what's, how, how severe is the behavior? And then there's duration. How long has it been going on? And we catch all three of these in his response. So he says that it's been happening since he was a child. So we can assume that this is either an adult or an older individual. Verse 22, it has often, it has often, so it's been happening several times a day, several times a week. And then he says how intense it was. And it has cast him into the fire and water. So in other words, he's saying that his life is at stake. 
that he is at risk of dying if something does not happen. And so I can imagine in this father's heart, there's this sense of desperation that I've been at this for years. I've been at this for years. I cannot take my eyes off of him or else he will die. I need something to happen. And it continues in verse 22. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything. And so now his prayers change because at first his request was, I need this demon cast out of him. But now he's just like, well, since your disciples can't do it, then just anything that you can do. I'm at my wit's end. There is nothing else that I can do, anything that you can do to have compassion on me, that you can help me, just whatever you can do. And so I sense this sense of desperation in this man, and that's our point four, that our prayers change the more desperate that our hearts become in the presence of God. Desperate people take anything. I remember one time I was with my wife, and uh, <laughs> we had bought something for a homeless person. <laughs> And they actually were like, uh, they were complaining about it. I'm like, geez, are you really desperate? Desperate people take anything. Anything that you can give them, they'll take. You know what our problem is sometimes? We're too demanding. We approach God with our lists, and we say, do it, God. This is what's going to please me. And this guy is saying, anything that you can have, do to have compassion on this and to help us, we'll take it. And Jesus says to him, if you can, repeating a part of what he said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. I think the question is, all things are possible for the one who believes what? Is God saying that anything that you can think of in your mind, your wish list, that he's able to do it and that he's going to provide all things for that? I don't think that that's where Jesus is going with this statement. I think what Jesus is saying is that for the person that comes surrendering their demands and who are relying strictly on the compassionate help of God, that all the available resources of heaven are available to that person. When you come surrendering all of your demands of God, God is able to reveal himself in powerful ways to that person. And so when you come acknowledging that God is able, you're not saying to God, here's my wish list, execute this for me. Really what you're saying is that God is sovereign to ex execute his plan to sanctify us and to accomplish his plan despite the imperfect means that God is using in order to make it happen. And what I mean by that is that there are some terrible things that happen to the people of God. When you think about people who go through these divorces or people who go through the loss of children or loved ones, people who are sick and going through really difficult periods in their life, that God is still able to use these situations to produce thanksgiving, to produce sanctification, to accomplish his plan 
in his life for that particular person. God is saying that if you believe that God is able, then he can take whatever those circumstances are and he can accomplish his plan for your life despite the means. And so this guy is desperate. And in verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I've seen you work. This is the reason why I brought my son to you, because I've seen, I've, I've heard the stories of how you can heal and how you can do all these miraculous works. But there's still a part of my heart that can't produce the kind of faith that you're talking about. And I think we can all resonate with that to some degree, that there's the sense in which we know the power of God. We, we've seen him work. We've heard stories. We've seen testimonies. But there's still parts of our heart that still struggle to produce what we can't in and of ourselves. And so he's saying to, to Jesus that I acknowledge that I'm inadequate, that there's something inside that I cannot produce that I need you to help me with. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd coming, verse 25, the crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? In verse 29, Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Point five. The relational dynamic that exists when you are alone in the presence of Jesus always reflects itself publicly. The relational dynamic that exists when you are alone in the presence of Jesus always reflects itself publicly. Whatever's going on in your life, in your prayer life, in your quiet time with God, always reveals itself publicly. It doesn't matter who you are. People talk about a personal relationship with God, yes, but it reflects itself publicly. Jesus said the symptom was the disciples weren't able to do something that they should have done. The amount of exposure that they had to the person of God in the presence of Jesus did not produce fruit that was consistent with that exposure. And Jesus diagnoses this as a faith problem. He said, we got a faith problem here. Through healing of this man's son, I think Jesus was not only saying to this man, but also to his disciples and to everyone else who was around that there's a hope for the condition for faithlessness. 
And that is when you come desperate, when you become hungry, when you don't become complacent in the presence of Jesus, but when you're persuaded that God is able, then he could even use situations that cause us pain and distress to produce faith for those that believe that he is able. And the way that he accomplishes all of this is in your time with him. That God begins to work in your heart when you pray. I don't think that Jesus was saying that you just need to pray more. That if you add another 20 or 30 minutes to your prayer time, that all of a sudden that would be the magic formula for God to work. It's great that you pray. But the important thing is what is happening in your heart when you're praying. How do we pray, folks? It's great to take our needs and our wants to God. But sometimes I think God is kind of seen as a cosmic slot machine where we just kind of put in our prayer requests and we just hope that God is going to give us all the things that we want. God is saying, you're talking too much. Prayer is a two-way conversation. I speak during prayer. It's not just you talking to God and rattling off all the things that you want. When you're in the presence of God, God exposes our hearts to him. God exposes our hearts, and it's in that recognizing of where our hearts are that we really should recognize our deep need for him. And that should cause us to cry out in more dependence of God. Prayer should create in us this sense of desperation this sense of hunger when we recognize how off we are and how holy he is. It should create this sense of desire that we need more of him. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples that there is a problem in the way that you relate to me. Application. I want us to pay attention to our hearts when we're in the presence of God. First off, number one, what are the dominant drives that shape your patterns of prayer? What is it that drives you to pray to God? Is it pain, discomfort? And absolutely, there's a place definitely where we can take all of that stuff to God. But I want us to understand again that prayer is more than us just talking but it's actually God talking to us too as well. It's great to take our pain to God. And I know some of us are in really uncomfortable situations. But number two, to what degree is the sheer joy of being in the presence of God motivation enough for us? Do you desire to be in God's presence? Like, is there a part of you as a follower of Jesus that says, I got to cut out everything else because I have to be here? There's something that I get in the presence of God that is so beautiful that it's, it, it, it just does something for me that I need to be here. I need to prioritize this time. Or is it just primarily 
My life needs to change. I'm not comfortable in my job. What is it that drives you to pray? What is it that drives you to want to connect with God? Is there a part of you that just wants to be in his presence just because? One of the distinguishing marks of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is a continual hunger for his presence. Not one that you have to contrive, not one that you have to force, but there is something sweet in the presence of Jesus that God wants his followers to experience. And Jesus is saying that this is available to you. Today my prayer is that as followers of Jesus, that we not just seek God for his power, but that we seek him for his presence. Above anything else that we can have of value in this life is the presence of God. We all go through terrible circumstances in life where we're stretched beyond our ability. And God is saying that there is something that is available to you in my presence that you can't get anywhere else. And it's that connection with God that he wants us to display, to live out, so that the world can see that there is no other hope. There's nothing else in this world that can give you than what I can give you when you're in my presence, when you're experiencing my presence with you day in and day out. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you will create in us a deeper hunger for you. That we would recognize in real time the power of your presence and what comes in the person of Jesus. God, I pray that you would create in us a hunger for you, Lord God, not just for what you can give us to relieve us of what's uncomfortable, but that our hearts would truly experience that sense of joy in your presence. Create in us a hunger for you, Lord God, and I pray that you would satisfy us, for there's nothing else on earth, Lord God, that can give us what you offer at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray.